Greetings everyone and welcome to the Living Your Best Life in Africa podcast and this is episode number six. Greetings everyone. I hope you had a great week. For me, it's been kind of busy because, as you know, I'm preparing to make my trip home to Malawi. I had told you in episode two of the podcast that I had booked my trip on Ethiopian Airways. And as I was sort of getting into the mood of preparing myself to board and pack and do all the things associated with travelling home... It put me in mind of my very first trip to Africa in 1995. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder, let me talk about that first trip because there are bound to be listeners who have also got that first trip to Africa experience that they might want to share. And so this podcast episode is about encouraging you to share it. So... My very first trip to Africa was in 1995 and I was a young trade unionist and I went on a trade union conference to South Africa. The union I was in at the time was twinned with a South African union and that South African union was having its annual conference in Durban. It was an eight day trip And I was flying from London Heathrow direct to Durban. Now, remember, this is my first trip. And I could not believe that I was on a plane going to Africa. Remember, my mum was a mum who said, you're not going no place. And so to legitimately be able to get her approval for me to go to South Africa was major. If you've got an African mother, you will know that it is major for them to allow you to get on a plane with complete strangers and say you're going to Africa. All right. So, I mean, I was like as proud as anything. But anyway, I mean, I'm in the airport and I'm surrounded by about four other African colleagues from the trade union and we're outnumbered by white colleagues and this one Asian man. And so I was a little bit annoyed because I knew that I would have to do the work of the union whilst I was there. But what it meant was that this really wasn't going to be my first trip to Africa because I wouldn't be able to explore Africa in the way that I wanted to because I had union officers watching me. And you know, when they watch you with that eye, they're watching to see if you're going to get down with those Africans. And you also have to go to places they want to see, which can be quite touristy. And so you don't really get a feel for the place and you don't really get an opportunity to vibe with the people. But anyway, I'm going to Africa and it's better than nothing. Now, one of the main reasons I still remember this trip 23 years later is because some key things about that trip moved me then and continue to move me up until today. And those experiences marked me so much that I swore that when I made my own trips to Africa, I would do things differently. 
Because when you end up going to Africa with non-Africans leading the trip, they're basically your administrators. So I'm the most senior person on the trip, but the administrators who work for the union, they sort of arrange everything for you. And it can be a difficult journey to make because, as I said, you can't be free and you don't really get the freedom you want. You get the freedom they choose for you. And that freedom is usually filled with their safe things that they want to do. But there were some things that marked this trip for me that I wanted to share with you. And I thought, well, the easiest way to do it is to give you the top five things that marked my first trip to Africa, which was a trip to South Africa in 1995. So here goes. At number five... It was travelling with Africans who think they're not African. I will always remember travelling with a six-foot, bald-headed African brother who wore a dicky bow tie and chinos with brogues and walked with his hands folded behind his back. I remember after landing in Durban, we had to go to a meeting and our host from the union came to meet us at the hotel. Now, I came downstairs. Remember... I've been going to various African meetings. I've read about Africa. I've got African friends. I've got African clothes. So I know, you know, I'm not trying to say that I'm better than anybody. But I knew I was going to Africa and I knew it was hotter than the UK. So I came prepared. So after landing in Durban, going to the hotel and changing, I came downstairs in some light clothing and I left my European duvet clothes in the room. So I came downstairs and I was met by our hosts who were toy-toying outside the hotel in the car park. Now, as I said, I've always been familiar with things about Africa, so I knew what toy-toy was. Toy-toy spelt T-O-Y-I, T-O-Y-I. I knew what was happening. I could see the fear in the eyes of the European administrators and the Asian man because they didn't understand that Toy Toy is a traditional dance that is revolutionary in nature, but it has its roots in political protests. And they also didn't know that Toy Toy is used to settle disputes. So if people can't agree or they have a grievance with each other, then they'll Toy Toy for hours if necessary until everyone is ready to reason again. And the aim of the toy-toy is to settle a dispute or agree a course of action without resulting to fighting. And even taking a vote is seen as a gross offence. And so instead you toy-toy. And then you toy-toy until you're ready to reason and you settle the dispute and you reach a consensus. Now, I figured that there may be some interest in seeing what a toy toy looks like. So I've included a link to one of the most recent toy toys that came out on Tinternet. And if you want to see what toy toy is, just click that link and then you'll be able to watch a toy toy in action. Now, obviously, anybody who knows me knows that I have a love for African music. So, of course, I wanted to go out and join the toy toy. But my white chaperones were saying, no, it's not safe to go out there. And I hated them in that moment because I was thinking, you mean you don't think it's safe for you to go out there? 
But because I was on union business, I had to follow orders and I had to watch the toy toy from a lobby chair whilst I waited for the rest of my colleagues. And so, man, you can imagine I was vexed. I wondered if they thought Africans might eat me. You remember that that came up in the very first episode of the podcast. And so I can show off now because I've grown up from that thought. But clearly they hadn't. Anyway, we were waiting for this six foot one UK African brother. And eventually he appeared just as the toy toy was ending. And up to now, I don't know what the toy toy was about, but it had something to do with emotion that was being debated at the conference the following day. So now as the toy toy is finishing, here comes this six foot one tall, thin, Maasai looking African colleague brother of mine from the UK. And he comes into the lobby and I kid you not, he had on a white shirt, a patterned bow tie, a Panama hat, a waistcoat and a tweed jacket. I will never forget the look on the face of our African host who stopped what he was doing and asked the brother where he thought he was going. I will also never forget the look on the UK brother's face, public school educated and only ever surrounding themselves with people who he thought were his equals and not many of those were African. I could see him computing that this African could not tell him what to do as he attempted to climb into the vehicle that was taking us to our meeting. Well, obviously, by now, I'm dying, right? I'm laughing, but try not to let him see me laughing. Because when you have to deal with Africans who are African by opportunity, sometimes it's really, really lovely to get the day off and let somebody else deal with the foolishness. So... I'm trying not to let him see that I'm laughing. But I remember the South African brother's face becoming stern when the UK brother tried to get into the vehicle. And he said to him, words to this effect, I'm sorry, my brother, but you can't come behind me looking like that. Who do you think you are? What do you think you look like? Where do you think you're going? You're an African, so you already blend in like a brother. But dress like that, you make us all a target. I'm sorry, but you'll have to change. Lose the tie, lose the hat, the waistcoat and the jacket, my brother. It's 90 degrees outside. I'm sure you'll be okay. We will wait for you. Well, obviously, by now I'm on the floor, right? <laughs> I'm dead. But I'm trying to hold it in. No toilet anywhere but I'm still trying to hold it in. But to his credit, the UK brother went and he changed and he came back minus everything he was asked to ditch. And do you know, this brother had the most amazing time at that meeting. I think he realised by the end of the night that he did not need to do anything that would help to separate him from Africa. And that memory of him and the happiness that he allowed himself to feel is a memory that will always stay with me from my first trip to Africa. At number four was a trip to Johannesburg and watching one of our Asian staff members think it was funny to try and sell me to a German tourist who was so taken with me that he wanted to take me back to Germany as a house girl. Can you imagine? The German man thought that the Asian man 
was my master. Because if you understand how South Africa was stratified, Asians were ranked above Africans. So although I was standing there and of a higher rank than this Asian man, the Asian man just couldn't help himself and made a complete idiot of himself as he tried to behave as if he was in charge of me. And the worst thing is he thought I would join him with the joke of being sold to a German man. All I'm going to say is that if you have ever seen my woman to beast impression, it has no mercy. I went up that B scale in six seconds flat and I ripped the head off the German man and the Asian man without mercy. Worse still for them that they were carrying on this nonsense at the Sharpville Museum where we were visiting to commemorate the Sharpville massacre. It's outrageous. I remember telling them both that they were a disgrace and worthy of being imprisoned for disrespecting the ground on which we were standing. I could see the embarrassment on both their faces because obviously the German thought I couldn't speak English and he never actually thought that I was the boss. I had to be held back from hitting him in his head with the stone. I will never forget how insulted I felt and it made me think about young African girls to whom this must have happened to given the ease with which these two racists were entering into a banter about my worthlessness. I would run into this Asian man acting the massa again later on in the trip. My third most remembered memory was going to Table Mountain on a trip to Cape Town. I've never been up anything so high and I also suffer from a little vertigo so I thought I was going to die by falling off the mountain when I got into the cable car. But I kid you not, when I got to the top and I looked down, it is one of the most amazing sights and views I have ever seen. The top of the mountain has its own ecosystem as well. But what I remember most was coming down the mountain and going to the Victoria Quarter which is by the water's edge in Cape Town. And usually you go there to buy souvenirs. I remember walking into this mall and seeing Africans serving in all the restaurants and doing all the cleaning and all the menial jobs, whilst lots of white tourists were walking about and deciding which restaurants they were going to eat in. And I remember this white tourist coming to me and asking me to show them to their seat. And I always remember one of my colleagues immediately putting a hand across my chest because they know me and they know that I was going for her wig, right? <laughs> but they put their hand across my chest and stopped me in my tracks. And whilst this was happening, a little African boy beckoned to me to follow him. He must have sensed something in me that made him feel comfortable with me. I remember seeing this little boy and then wondering what he was doing. And then he came running out from a little corner and he slipped a bit of paper in my hand. I read the paper and it said, come to the real African market. I looked up and I saw the boy in this corner of the mall. So myself and one of my good male brothers followed him 
We just left everybody behind and we said, we're going this way. And you know, oh, be careful, be careful. We're saying, look, we're going this way. We'll meet you at the end. And I kid you not, we went behind this little wall and walked into one of the greatest African markets I have ever seen. Filled top to bottom with African traders. It seems that Africans were not good enough to be in the front of the mall and instead were stuck in the back where the tourists were less likely to go. But for me, I wasn't at the mall to buy clothes and shoes and designer this and that. I was right where I needed to be and I was astonished by what I saw. I saw some things and I could have bought the whole market but I didn't walk with much money to buy many things. I did, however, buy a piece of gold jewellery made in the African stickman tradition. This is a tradition that sees stick art figures carved out of the gold. It's the most beautiful piece of jewellery ever and I still have it to this day and still wear it. And when I wear it, I'm always reminded of that brave little boy who came into the mall where local Africans weren't invited to try and tout for business. If you want to see a picture of the ring, you can find a picture on my Instagram page at Living Your Best Life in Africa. Let me know what you think, because for me, it's one of the most beautiful pieces I have ever bought. And considering that it's 23, 24 years old. It looks as good as new. My second most memorable moment was a trip to Mpumalanga, a Zulu name which means the place where the sun rises. And you're kind of like going north in South Africa now. It's a district in the east of South Africa and it kind of borders with Swaziland and Mozambique. We went to visit a hospital that was funded by the trade union. But what was so special about this trip was that I met 72 African doctors who were volunteering at the hospital. The doctors had just arrived from Cuba. Cuba! This country that had been so demonised by the West. And I found myself saying, 72 doctors! volunteering with their wages being paid by their own country and all of their accommodation costs and I thought to myself I have never ever seen anything like that happening from the UK where doctors en masse go and run a hospital in an African country just because it's the right thing to do not wanting anything from the country. I have never seen anything like that. One of the doctors told me that it was part of their national service that they volunteer in Africa because Cuba has many doctors per head of population and Fidel Castro felt that it was the duty of Cuba to build up Africa because Africa had supported Cuba during its revolutionary phases. I was so touched by this. When you live in a culture where the Africas, that's Africa and the Caribbean, are always projected as backward nations that only take, it was such a wonderful and proud feeling to see all these doctors who were so happy to provide a service to poorer people 
who could not afford medical treatment. And I felt proud because I knew I had never seen anything. I'd never seen the UK, the country I come from, do anything like that. Deliver no strings attached aid as part of national service. I have never seen anything like that. And I've never seen anything like that since. It was a real touching moment for me and one that I will always remember. But my number one most memorable moment for my very first trip to Africa was when I went out to eat dinner at a private residence. Remember that Asian man I told you about in my fourth memory? He appears again here. Remember how I dressed him down for thinking it was funny to try and sell me? Well, his intention had always been to get back at me for embarrassing him in front of this German man. And he saw his opportunity in this experience. The whole party was invited by this Asian man to have dinner at the home of one of his rich friends, whom he said was an important person in South Africa. So we travelled to Peter Marisburg, which is a, a region in KwaZulu-Natal, or KZN, as it's more fondly called. And I remember the car driving into this underground car park of this big house. We walked up a marble staircase and into a huge lobby to be greeted by an Asian man who was very nice. He introduced us to his wife and his three children, but I wasn't interested in them because my eye caught some movement in the corner of the kitchen. So as I turned to look, I saw an old mama who was drying plates. She looked about 70. I didn't know what to make of this until I saw the man's children start talking to each other through the elder as if she wasn't there. Then the younger two children started chasing each other around the kitchen bumping into the elder mama, almost knocking her over, but to all purposes, bumping into her because she was a nothing, not there, and had no right to speak. Well, my blood pressure hit the roof. I stepped forward to grab one of these little brats, but I caught the fear in the eyes of the elder mama. And you know how our elders and our parents gesture with their lips? They can speak whole sentences by making shapes with their lips. And with the gentle shape of her lip and the gentlest shake of her head, she told me not to do anything. I immediately stopped and I smiled at her. In my life, you don't disobey an order from an elder and I wasn't about to start doing it now whether I knew the elder or not. But neither was I prepared to let this little Asian boy get away with what he had done. I dragged him to the front door and I told him, I want to leave right now. I'm the head of the delegation. I don't care what you all do. I'm not staying here. You get the car and you get me back to the hotel. I began shouting and he got scared and said, but please... You're the guest of honour because you're the head of the delegation. If you leave, I'll be shamed. So I said again that I want to leave and he better get the car. So he went away, but then he sent one of my colleagues to speak with me. And my colleague begged me to calm down. 
saying that the Asian man sent them to tell me that he saw what happened and he was sorry for how the old woman had been treated. I explained to my colleagues that maybe they are used to seeing elders abused, but I am not. But I said that if it meant so much to them to stay, I would stay, but I would not eat from these people. They went back and told the Asian man and he came back to me again, begging, telling me not to shame him. Well, I ate his head and I told him to make a choice. Either I leave or they eat and I wait. He chose the latter. I sat there at the marble dinner table for the next two hours and did not say a word and did not eat or drink anything. But I could see the elder mama and I could feel that her spirit was uplifted because I think by then she'd worked out that I wasn't just an ordinary African who was sitting at that dinner table. And I think she took a sense of pride from that without ever opening her mouth. I often remember this elder and I wonder whatever became of her. It wasn't that the elder was the help in the home of these vile people that upset me. What had upset me was that in my experience, in our cultures, when we have helpers helping us, we treat them as members of the family. We don't treat them as people who should be abused and humiliated. And this is what had made me angry at the time. In addition to the subliminal message from the Asian man, whom I definitely felt wanted to get me back for what had happened in Sharpville, by trying to cut me down to size by thinking I would see myself as a lowly human being because I saw the elder as the help. But he was so wrong and I ate his head and then embarrassed the heck out of him at the dinner table. And I'm not sorry. I wasn't sorry then and I'm not sorry now. It's amazing that despite 25 years having gone past these memories are still vivid in my mind as if they happened last year. And that's the beauty of Africa. When you travel there, the memories are imprinted on your mind like a long lost relative whom you've been dying to see. That's how it felt for me at the time. And I hope it feels that way for you when you make your very first trip to Africa. I hope you found this episode interesting. I would love to hear your stories about your first trip to Africa. So why not consider sharing them on our Facebook or Instagram page? Through the podcast, I'm going to be bringing you stories of people who made their first trip to Africa. So I want you to look out for those. Next week's podcast is going to focus on the really important point of everybody's life not always being better than yours and why it doesn't take much for your life to be going places. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, then follow the podcast in iTunes. If you follow the link 
in the show notes. You can listen to the podcast in iTunes and you can also leave me a review. I'd love to know what you think. It's always a pleasure to share this time with you. Until next week, I'm Dr. Asher and I'm out. Mm-hmm.